God's word is alive and powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints of the marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Every time God's word is opened, you have an intense and awesome privilege. And that privilege is to take that word and place it in your, in your mind, in your very being, and have it move you towards change even on the day before spring break. You know, they, they told me this week, they planned this intentionally, they got the lightweight for this day. <laughs> No, but they told me this week that they were gonna, that, that this was kind of the end and that, that we were moving towards spring break. And I suddenly went back to this, this, this point in time, uh, not too far back in my background, where I remember it being Friday, and I remember that last test. And I remember spring break was just around the corner, and as I poured out the last bit of that information out onto that page, I remember going out that door and saying, I'm free. <laughs> it's over. Friends, you're not free yet. We got another 45 minutes. And then you're free. And I'll go with you. We'll go to the beach. How many go to the beach? Oh, man, I'm ready. I wonder if you have the courage today to pray a prayer with me before we begin. I wonder if you have the courage to ask Father to show you what you need to know from His Word today. Because believe this, friends, every time God's word is open, he has something to say to you. And it's not something just to make you more of an intellectual. It's to conform you to his way. It's to bring you to his side. And dear ones, it's just possible that in this word today, you will find the ammunition you need to make it through this spring break. And so for those of you who are not willing to check out, I'm going to ask you to pray a very significant prayer. I'm going to ask you to ask Father to take away the distractions, to take away those thoughts of what is coming, great as it is, and to have your mind and your heart purely centered on Him for the next 40 minutes. So I ask. Pray with me, will you? Father, it's so easy to get sidetracked. It's so easy to lose our way. It's so easy to say, well, there'll be another chapel. There'll be another time to come around your word. It's so easy to apply to others. It's so easy to look around and say, I I wish so-and-so was here. They needed this this morning. (laughs) Father, deliver us from that. Deliver us from the blame game. Move us towards your word today. Show us what you would have us to hear, to know, to see, to do. We give you all the glory. We take this time, we commit it into your hands. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.
Turn to Genesis 3 with me, will you? Familiar passage. We're just going to start here and then we'll move right along. Genesis 3 starts on a day not unlike any other day in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect California day. I was walking in this morning. I was walking past that wonderful baseball field. You guys take good care of your baseball field. Uh, and I was walking past and I go, man, I wonder if this was what it was like in the garden. You know, ambient temperature all the time, 75 degrees in the day. It cooled off just a little bit, maybe at night to 72 so they could sleep in a more relaxed environment. The mists would come up from the ground and water everything. Everything was green and lush and beautiful. And Adam and Eve had this magnificent communion, one with another, and of course with their God. And they were going along and they woke up one morning and they stretched. By the way, did they sleep? Of course they did. And they woke up one morning and they stretched. You know, I wonder what God has in store for us today. I wonder what goodness and mercy and greatness uh, we're going to see from His Word today. But there's something else that they hadn't considered that was in store for them that day. It was a day that Satan had chosen to test their satisfaction level with God. Throughout my little talk this morning, you're going to hear me all the time refer to application, application, application. My friends, without application, we are useless. As you go into your spring break this week, you can bet one thing's going to happen. It's sure thing. The devil is going to check your satisfaction level with God. How you doing? How you doing with God? You believe in what he's saying? You believe in that His path is the right path? Hey, come over here and check this out. I, I think that you will find, if you'll take this just this little exit here, you'll, you'll find a better path. i got something better for you over here. He's going to check it. He's going to test you. It's His job. And as you go through your spring break, in a million different ways, you're going to be tested in just that area. You are going to be tempted to take a road that is far away from what God would have you to do. And it happened just in Genesis 3. You know the story. They were going along. The serpent, who was craftier than any other being, came up and he tempted. He checked out. He tested where Eve was. He says, what did God say about this sort of thing? You know her response. She said, well, you know, you shouldn't even touch it or you'll die. He goes, hmm, then have her fat straight. You remember the result. She made a choice. She took it and she ate. And it changed how they thought, how they saw each other. It changed the whole status. My friends, here's what I want you to understand. The moment you give in to temptation from the evil one, it will change how you think about your school. It will change how you think about your God. It will change how you think about His Word. It will change how you think about absolutely everything that's happening in your life. You can count on it. What does Scripture say? All of a sudden they looked at each other and they said, Eve, I just noticed something about you. She says, what's that, honey? You don't have any clothes on. He says, well, now that you mention, I, I, I noticed the same thing about you. 
you realize that you don't have any clothes on either? And they did a wonderful thing, just like we do. We start covering in the tracks, don't we? How typical of it is of mankind to look around and say, oh, now wait a minute here, what can we cover ourselves with? And they, they, they look around and their best idea is to cover themselves with leaves. Friends, have you ever tried to sew leaves together? When I was a little kid, I used to play G.I. Joe. Guys, come on, remember. You used to play G.I. Joe and, and you'd put on those khaki pants and you'd get that t-shirt on. And then I was really good because I had watched Vic Morrow on combat. <laughs> and I, I'd watch this sort of thing. I, I watched that they would take leaves and they would put it in the helmets. I didn't have a helmet. So what I did is I took leaves and I would take leaves and I would pin them to my shirt. You ever try to pin leaves to a shirt? Oh, it's so like man find a way to substitute a way to get around a problem and so what they dis decided to do I know what we'll do we'll sew some fig leaves together and we'll cover ourselves so pretty soon they had this and this and about that time God showed up read with me verse 8 they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord called and man and said to him, literally in the Hebrew it says, why are you where you are? What are you doing over there? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that we're naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to? And the man fell right into what we're going to talk about this morning. It's called the blame game. And each one of us in a million ways are going to play this game this next week. Here's what he said. The man said, see that woman over there? The woman you gave to me? She gave me from the tree and I ate it. When we look at this person, we say, well, who did he blame? Who did he blame? Eve. Well, worse than that, who did he blame? God. He made God the patsy. Hey, who are you blaming? Who are you blaming for the temptations that come down your path, the things that are happening in your life, the things that you are struggling with? Who are you blaming for? My friends, let's get this one straight. Until you get the grasp, of the, of the problem that the problem of temptation is not other people. The problem of temptation is within your own heart. You will never move beyond it. It won't happen. Well, you know, if, if such and such wouldn't have done this, I've written a list. I remember back from my days in college. Ready? If my roommate would just clean up after himself, I wouldn't get so angry. If my roommate would just put the cap on the toothpaste... I wouldn't get so cranky. Here's one we can associate with. If that prof would just lighten up on the homework, I wouldn't be so sleepy. If there hadn't been alcohol at that party, I wouldn't have tied one on. If those girls at the beach weren't dressed like that, I wouldn't struggle with my lust patterns. My friends, we blame everybody else for our own problems. I pulled up an old letter that I wrote to my mentor in, in seminary. God bless him. He put up with so much. Even as, as I read this this morning, it pained me. 
Dear friend, as usual, your words... can't even read the thing. As usual, your words last week hit me right where it hurts. For many weeks now, I've been struggling in my theology class. We keep falling farther and farther behind the syllabus as we are constantly sidetracked by the political issues in which our school is currently embroiled. It seems that fully half our class time is taken to discuss the issues and to rally support in in one particular direction. As the semester has progressed, I have found myself getting more and more angry. And with each new bit of anger has come a corresponding unwillingness to submit, to study, to prepare, to learn. How impudent, how arrogant I am. My prof is not my problem. I'm my problem. It's not my responsibility to judge him. It's the responsibility of the administration and God who has placed him in that position. The more I blame, the less I learn. I can take this road no longer. I have confessed getting this this flood of emotions coming back. (laughs) I've confessed my sinful relating style and have once again returned to my rightful and joyous occupation. I am and desire to be a careful student of God's word. Pray for me that I might not be sidetracked again, that this valuable lesson might be seared into my mind, that I might be the student God wants me to be. Students of blame game will keep you from moving towards God. When you move into your class and say, you know, that prof just isn't doing the job that he should be doing. She's just not teaching the way she's... You're losing track. You're losing an opportunity to learn. And since I'm out of school, let me spend a few moments with the professors, may I? Students, you can take 30 minutes in Hawaii, 30 seconds in Hawaii here. Profs, you have the greatest privilege in the world to be teaching in this college. It is your responsibility to use every minute for God's glory. I know you're underpaid. I know you're overworked. I know there's not enough time in the day. Don't play the blame game. Take your students and move them towards godliness. Okay, students, you weren't listening to that. Come back. Today we're going to consider the area of blame. And I'd like to look at three basic points. I'd like to start off with a P. I'd like us to consider the issue of becoming a patsy. When it comes to temptation and those things that are happening in our life, who becomes our patsy? Who is the one that we place the blame on? Until we come to terms with that, we will never get over it. If we keep saying, well, you know, if he just wouldn't, I wouldn't. I get so angry when he. I just really struggle when they. No, the problem is inside of you. And that's what we're going to find today in the book of James. Would you turn with me to James chapter 1? James chapter 1. When we're led away by temptation, we tend to make God, people, or circumstances the pathies for our actions. Up on the board here, we have a a nice little uh, chart of the first chapter of James. Would you look up here for a moment? In the first 12 verses of the book of James, you see up in the upper left-hand corner here, 
got this neat little, you're going to like this. <laughs> Graduation present from seminary. Hang in there. You might get one. <laughs> Path of life. That's pretty cool. Never use that. Oh, sorry. I'm back. Path of life. There we are. Path of life. We are walking down the path of life. We got a nice little I-14 highway going along here. Okay? And what we see up here in the top here is that as we go through our life, James says to you, count on it. It's going to happen. You're going to run into trials. Trials will come into your life. Those are the things that we have no control over. In a broad area, they're the things that happen just because we're on this planet in a world system. In a narrower format, you've seen it as students here at the Master's College. When you choose to walk God's path in a certain way, you are tried, aren't you? People laugh. People give you a hard time. You'll go out on missions. People spit in your face. That's part of trials. But he says, in the midst of trials, here's what's going to happen. If you are faithful, if you endure, you will move towards a crown of life. And he says, blessed is the man who preserves under trials, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now, right in there in the middle of the road is this thing called temptation. And this thing, temptation, moves around something called lusts. And now today, in this passage, from 13 through 18, he's going to instruct us with the issue of lust. He says, lust leads to sin, which leads to death. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's where we're headed today. We're moving away from trials, those things that just happened to you. Now we're moving into temptation. We make everybody else the patsy. We make people the patsy. We make circumstances the patsy. Worse than that, as Adam did, we make God the patsy. God, why did you give this illness to me? God, why in the world did you give me this wife? God, why did you lead me down this path of temptation? God, why am I... How arrogant we are. How short-sighted we are when it comes to understanding God. Dig in with me. Verse 13. Are you ready? You're ready to study now for about 20 minutes. Then we're going to go out. 13. Imperative mood. What does imperative mood mean? Greek students, you remember, an imperative is a very valuable uh, element that we have in the Greek language. It's somewhat similar to an exclamation point that we have in English. Uh, it's a very situation instead of saying, Oh, a fire in the barn. No, it's, Ah, a fire in the barn! Imperative. Got it? Imperative. Now, what he says, imperative, let none of you, no way, no, no, let none of you say this when he is tempted. I'm being tempted by God. Let none of you say that. Here's why. Let none of you say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Two points. God is not the cause. Why is he not the cause? Look what it says. He says, God cannot be tempted by evil. God is not temptable. And more important, he himself does not tempt anyone. So when we, when we start to blame God, when we start to blame others, we're missing the point. We're making other people the patsy for our anger, for our frustration, for our lust, for our problems. My wife, you would love my wife. She's the most beautiful person in the world. All four foot 11, 90 pounds of her. She's, I should have had a picture of Pammy. I would have kept the guys awake for a while anyway. She's beautiful. She's lovely. She's precious. I'm so glad God put me into her life. But, but, but when, when she was tiny, 
Well, she still cried. But when she was a little girl, she had two younger sisters who were very mean. And she constantly was made the patsy for their actions. I remember one specific occasion she told, tells me about as, as a little girl. They were on a vacation, and, and it seemed like they were, her, her father is a minister in Phoenix. He's been the, the minister of the church I attended for 26 years. Isn't that lovely? The guy in one place for 26 years. Magnificent. But they were on their, their way one time from New York to Florida, and they were driving in this old car. And this old car, if you, if you turn off the key, it wouldn't start again. They went through two cases of oil on their way from New York to Florida. That kind of a car. So they would be in the back seat, and you know how kids are when they're going along, they get a little bored, and they start getting a little boisterous. Dad would just kind of turn around and see, you kids, knock it off back there, or you're going to get it. And he'd keep going for a while. There's Lori on one side over here, and there's, there's Robin over here on the other side. And there's precious Pam in the middle, reading the Bible, <laughs> witnessing to her sisters about the waywardness of their sins. Little precious Pammy. And, and, and they're going along, and it's getting more and more voices. No, you didn't. Is it it? No, you didn't. And Pam says, oh, please, God. Please, please cause us to be stopped. And pretty soon, he says, all right, I've had it. Janet, take the wheel. And he turned around in that seat, and he start wheeling with that arm. Oh, you remember. <laughs> didn't just happen to me. Now, here's what I mean by passing. Because uh, those wicked sisters of my, uh, of my wife, they would take poor little Pammy, wrist this big, <laughs> tiny precious child, and they would grab her by those wrists and they would push her forward <laughs> so that she would get the wrath of her father inflicted upon her instead of upon them. She became Pammy the Patsy. Got Patsy now? And so, so we make someone else the Patsy. We take someone else and we put them up in front of her. God, this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for this person. Let them have it. And you wonder why you struggle with the same problem over and over and over in your life because we keep pointing the blame at other people. We pointed at God. We pointed at wives. We pointed at roommates. We pointed at profs. We pointed at everybody we can think of. But then we look at ourselves in the mirror and go, not me. I couldn't be the problem. My friends, let's get on this. Let's start pointing the blame where it belongs. Let's start understanding who is the source of our problem because that's what we're going to find in our second point here. We're going to find that our own inner self is the perpetrator. So we have a passy, those people who surround us, those circumstances, those situations, that checkbook, those things. Now we're going to move to the perpetrator. Let's look what God says about temptation. No, no, I'm not the one who tempts you. No, no, it's not me who causes evil to fall upon you. Here's actually what happens. Here's what happens, verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, carried away and enticed are two words you want to, want to kind of key on because they're words that have to do with fishing. Fishing or bait. I feel really stupid right now because out of my truck is my illustration. 
I hope you're good visualizers. If I had my if I had my fishing stuff with me today, I would show you what a lure looks like. Are you all familiar with what lures look like? They're the silliest thing. You open up your fishing box, and you open it up, and you pull out this thing, and this thing's kind of in the shape of a crawdad. It's so weird looking. It's kind of got a brown back, and the ones that I have have these kind of yellow eyes that jiggle. You know, they kind of move around like this. And the particular one that they tell me that is wonderful for catching fish, it has a red belly on it. And, and when you kind of rap, rattle it this way, it makes, it makes noise like a baby rattle. They say that that really entices fish. And when you throw that thing in the water and you start moving that along, there's that fish sitting underneath that rock and he looks at that and goes, Hey, stomach's rumbling. I haven't had breakfast yet. Crawdad would be good about right now. But there's some fish who, who don't go for that. They go more for those fake rubber worms. Ever seen those? A little rubber worm that's got this little hook attached to it on the underbelly that you can't really see. Then it goes into the water and it just kind of, you kind of jig that thing around, I guess. You ever watch those fishing shows? Saturday morning, okay, on the, on the country music uh, station. If you watch more than five minutes, you're a sick person. I want you to know that. But, but you, they show those underwater scenes. And underwater scenes are really interesting because there's that real nice big old cutthroat trout sitting under that rock and going, all of a sudden that rubber worm pulls by and goes, hmm, that looks good. Before you know it, he goes out and he grabs that thing. The fisherman gets a big old smile on his face. Now here's what I've noticed. Two things. First thing that I've noticed is that lures do not find the fish. Fish find the lures. I have yet to see a lure that is fish sensitive. It may be in creation right now, but it goes around, changes that, pow, got him. I didn't want to Here's the second thing I have never seen. I have never seen fish gangs, okay? Fish gangs who are taking that, that fish by the gill. Come on, eat it. Eat it. You're going to eat that thing. Go ahead. Eat it or I'm going to kill you. No. What is the thing when we are alert and we are enticed? We make a decision, don't we? We look at it and we go, It looks tasty. No one's around. Chomp. Oh, and the consequences. And my lovely wife Pamela is leaving town next week. And I hate to tell you this, but I am subject to temptation when she's gone. In many ways. Not just in the area of purity, but in the areas of overwork. I eat chocolate sundaes all day. And Tyson breaded fish sticks for breakfast. of things. Who needs to put on those sneakers and go for that nightly run? I'll just sit up and, and kind of think about it while I eat some popcorn and a classic Coke. She always buys me diet. Classic Coke. 
So instead of having to deal with those temptations and those lures, they're bad enough. With my wife out of town, I said to myself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build some walls around myself this time. And so last week, I pulled my assistant pastor into my office. He thought he was in trouble. <laughs> I said, my wife's going to be out of town next week. And Roger, if you don't mind, here's what I'd like you to do. Every day. I want you to ask me how I'm doing. I want you to ask me how I'm doing with the lures. I want you to ask me, what did you bite on last night? Tyson's breaded fish chips. What, what, what do you ask? Did you get the sleep last night that caused you to come into the office today and glorify God and, and be a helper to people as you should be? Did you eat right? Did you exercise? Or were you lured away? It's my choice. But I choose to surround myself with people who will help keep me pure. Loved ones, when you go on spring break this weekend, would you surround yourself with people who will keep you pure? Because when we do not, there's a very specific path that we take. And I'd like you to look at, at this. This whole issue moves down to the issue in verse 15. When we decide to grab onto that bait, when we take that crawdad in our mouth, it starts a series that has no end except death. When that fish grabs a hold of that thing, pretty soon it looks good at the outside, but pretty soon he's going to find out this is not a good thing. I can't breathe anymore. I'm out of my normal comfort zone. And pretty soon he's fried up in a pan and in somebody's belly. James didn't use a fishing analogy for no reason, my friends. Because in the next verse, we find out the path. You ready? In the original language here, it moves into the feminine mode. And in the feminine mode, they use an element of conception. A very lovely thing is happening to a couple in our church. They've been together for a while. They're just about, he's just about to graduate from college. He's excited about the future. She's excited about the future. They looked at each other in the eye and they say, you know what? I think it's time to have our, our first child. And so they came together, and now, in about five and a half months, we're going to see this beautiful little child coming into the world. Because when they come together, there's conception, and conception starts a process going on inside of this soon-to-be mother. And when it has conceived, there is life. Oh, but not so with sin. Temptation comes into our past and we look it right in the face with our lust and here's what it says. When, but each one is tempted, verse 15, that when lust has conceived, lust conceives when temptation comes together with it. That old bait comes out. We're sitting under that rock. We take a look and we go, yeah, maybe. That looks pretty good. Uh, no one will see it. 
But here's what it says. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it gives birth to death. James readers are going along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feminine mode, the conception, they're getting the idea. Beautiful little baby. He says, no, no. When temptation and lust come together and conceived, it leads to sin. And when sin starts to move down its proper path, it leads to death. You do not know the path that temptation will lead you. Now listen. A dear friend of mine in seminary, a man that I knew well, a man who had many medals for valor in Vietnam, a man who was a great jet pilot, a man who was a great achiever, a man that as we looked at him, this is a man who will be used mightily of God. And he got into seminary, and he got in this mode of making straight A's, and he said, there's no way I will ever get a B. I must have an A so that I can go on to Cambridge, and so that I can go on and do this and this and this. He was driven, driven, driven by his own lusts. And finally he got to the point where he says, I've got to find a way to get by on three hours of sleep. And he began to experiment with cocaine. He said, in the seminary, get with it. And the more he used, the more he needed. And the more he struggled, the more he floundered. And that man is on the sidelines today. A hopeless casualty of the lust that says, I will drive myself to be the best and be the best. Those little sins, that little temptation that takes you no farther, that you can turn from, you are lying to yourself. My friends, move to a point of application and say to yourself, what in my life right now am I playing with? What am I trifling with right now? That I say, well, I can move away from that at any time. I can confess that at any time. Give it up. Oh, friends, with the most passion that I can bring forth, may I just say to you, don't trifle with sin. God wants to use you people. You have been placed in the most blessed spot in all of California, yea, maybe in this United States. You have been placed in a spot around godly people who love you, around people who are giving you opportunities to make your testimony grow, and for you to go out and influence this world for Jesus Christ, and Satan wants to see you defeated. See, Satan is not that worried about Christians who sit on the sidelines, what my wife calls Sunday Christians. He's not worried about them. Got them right where he wants them. He is intensely worried about you. Each one of you right now who are preparing to be pastors, to be teachers, to be Christian businessmen and women, to be all these things, he is very concerned about you because you could change the world. And you can blow it up with a decision. Because lust leads to sin, and sin leads to death, and it's no one's fault but your own. You choose. I close with a warning and a promise. James brings it all to a halt in the 16th verse. 
and back to that wonderful imperatival mood. And he says, you stop being deceived. Quit it. Stop being deceived, my beloved brethren. I say to you, stop being deceived, my beloved students. I am so blessed to have in our congregation godly men and women from this great institution. I say to them, stop being deceived, men. Stop being deceived, ladies. God wants to use you. And a promise. Verse 17 and 18. Still with me? Hang in there. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Literally in the original language this says, every one of God's motives is pure. Every one of God's motives is pure. God loves Bert. I love Bert with all my heart. And God has a desire for Bert. And all his desires are pure. He says, Bert, I want to give you. My motivation is to grow you into my image. I love you, Bert. I want you to be like me. And as a result of that, i got a package for you. There you go. I got a perfect gift for you. Every good motive, every perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. Look what it says. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift literally keeps on descending from God. Are you finding that true in your life? Oh, I love it. Every day I wake up and I say, God, thank you for the privilege of ministering at Church of the Canyons. Every good thing, every perfect gift, you just keep bringing it down onto me. How wonderful He is. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. You know, you look around the world and you look at people and you look at things and they change, don't they? They shift. They move. You can't rely on them. God says, hey, I'm the one who created it all. And you can trust me. Everything I have is for your best. Everything I want to give to you is perfect. And it comes to you compliments of the one who never changes. Isn't that good? Oh, I thank God for that in my life. I thank God for a series of circumstances that brought me to this place today. I've been thanking God all week for the privilege of opening His Word before you godly people. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruit, the best, the number one grade, the sacrifice to Him.
done well, and I thank you. Thanks for hanging tough on a tough day. One more minute. Would you think about this this week? Would you ask yourself, where am I playing the blame game? Am I blaming my props for my low scores? Am I blaming my roommate for my anger? Am I blaming my coach for my batting average? Am I blaming God? so fast when you start looking at yourself in the mirror and say it's me it's my fault I'm the one God help me fix it that's what maturity is that's what it takes brutal and absolute honesty with your sin nature I'm so tired of Christians who run around with a veil in front of their face as to who they are and what their sin nature is. Get real, young people, and change the world. You will. If you do. And start today. If you do. Stop. morning who need a moment or two of meditation to to calm your heart and hear clearly what God has been trying to say through his word. Are you struggling with blame? Are you struggling with your willingness to see yourself for who you are? Are you living a life that it's a lie? not putting protective walls about yourself. Do you already have plans this coming week? Or not? 